You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White with David White. And uh, David, big week this week. It's the World Cup Finals. Are you excited? I am so excited, Neil. Belgium, France, England, and Croatia were the final four, all European countries. So you know there's a lot of history between them, both on the pitch and uh, elsewhere outside in the real world. Uh, Do you have a team you're cheering for, David? France and Croatia in the finals? I think I'm cheering for France. Well, you know I'm cheering for Croatia because I always love an underdog story. We've got a great world cup quiz coming up at the end of this podcast david so stay tuned for that Uh, but before let's get to our main story and i'll ask you oh brother when art thou neil it's august 22nd 1787 and james wilkinson an american militia general is in new orleans declaring allegiance to the king of spain in the presence of the governor of spanish louisiana all right, so an American general is declaring allegiance to the king of Spain. That doesn't sound right. It's generally not uh, something that they want you to do, no. Uh, so what's going on in the world at this time? Uh, bring me up to speed here on Louisiana and you know the king of Spain. How are they related? All right, so to start off, we're right very shortly after the end of the American Revolution. And the American Revolution, of course, was an uprising by citizens of the 13 colonies against the King of Britain, who ran those colonies until they ran them out of town. So that war's over, and the U.S. is an independent country. The U.S. is now an independent country, but not all of what we consider the modern U.S. is independent yet. It was only a very small portion of the eastern seaboard that made up the 13 colonies one of the states the modern states that was not a state at that time was louisiana which before the revolution had belonged to the king of spain hadn't rebelled and therefore in 1787 is still a colony run by the spanish okay so louisiana is a spanish colony now what is an american militia general doing there well james wilkinson is a politician as well as a general in the militia. He lives in Kentucky at this point in his life, and in theory, he's in Louisiana negotiating with the the Spanish uh, for a commercial treaty regarding shipping up and down the Mississippi River, which both Louisiana and Kentucky have access to. Of course, that doesn't require him to declare allegiance to anybody. So why does he end up declaring allegiance to the king of Spain. Well, he's a politician, and he has his own objectives in this mission to Louisiana, which have nothing to do with his official mission to negotiate a trade treaty. What would James Wilkinson like to accomplish? Well, James Wilkinson wants to get rich. Don't we all? That's going to be a very consistent motivation throughout his uh, various careers. And he's involved with some very sketchy people in his efforts to make some quick cash. And at this point in time, he's working on 
uh, some land deals in Kentucky that he's hoping will make him very, very wealthy. Who among us hasn't gotten involved with some sketchy people trying to get rich quick with land deals in Kentucky? It's a perfectly normal thing to do, Neil. But he's got a problem. The U.S. is in the process of creating a new constitution, the modern American constitution. In 1787, they haven't written that yet. And he doesn't like it because it's not going to maximize the value of his land in Kentucky the way he was hoping they were going to do. So he's looking for a new partner, somebody else who's willing to find ways to maximize the value of that land, especially land right along the Mississippi River. And he's had an idea, an idea that if he made Kentucky become a part of Spain, a colony of Spain, instead of a state in America, then the Mississippi would be more important and his land would go way up in value. So the American Constitution, one of the most uh, inspirational documents of freedom in the world, in history, isn't good enough for James Wilkinson because it's not going to make him rich. Exactly. And he's very unhappy with it, and he's already leading a political campaign in Kentucky trying to convince them to vote against it at the Constitutional Convention. But, as it turns out, people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson are more popular than James Wilkinson, so it looks like it's going to pass. And he's starting to consider some different options. So what's the feeling in Kentucky like? Do they want to end up being a colony of Spain? Well, no, they absolutely don't. That's a bizarre suggestion that Wilkinson has never made publicly and actually never will. On the other hand, they're a very independent people. And the idea that possibly they could make a go of it as an independent country rather than being part of the United States, has made the rounds. It's not necessarily a popular idea. Definitely most of the population wants to belong to this new, exciting democratic experiment on the North American continent. But it might just be enough of a interest in minority opinion that an unscrupulous political dealmaker might be able to change how things are running in Kentucky with the support of this group. And that man is James Wilkinson? James Wilkinson hopes so. So what does he do to try and um, become part of the Spanish colony? Well, he heads out for a bold attempt to start his fake political movement to create an independent Kentucky with plans that once it's been successful, he will then turn around and have his new independent Kentucky that he's running join with Spain. This is a pretty devious plan, David. It sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. It's rather crazy. Actually, Teddy Roosevelt, the American future American president at this point, uh, when he finds out what happens reading in history books just like we do, calls James Wilkinson the most despicable man in American history. Well, that's quite the name there. So does Wilkinson make any progress on his plan? He does not. The problem that comes running is cold, hard cash. If you want to run a political movement, you have to spend large amounts of money. Wilkinson wants to get rich, but he's not 
very rich at this point in time. He doesn't have enough money to run a political campaign the size that he wants to. And the Spanish, even though they're quite happy to take his oath of allegiance and run him as a secret agent in America, they're not interested in actually financing what they view as a completely crazy long-shot campaign. And without money, this little political campaign collapses and Kentucky eventually does join up as a state in the United States of America where she remains to this day. But that's not the end of James Wilkinson's story. So Wilkinson's not out of ideas on how to get rich. No, he's not. Actually, with the collapse of his real estate dreams, he decides that he's going to go back to his other job. I've already mentioned that he was a militia general already. He decides that if he's not going to get rich as a realtor, maybe he could get rich as a general in the U.S. Army. Were a lot of generals getting rich? Well, there's one tiny little problem with this plan. There isn't actually a U.S. Army in 1788-89. That would seem to be a problem. It's a problem, but as it turns out, it's not as insurmountable a problem as you would imagine. There are little state militias. Every state at the time has its own militia, which is made up of reservists, essentially, in modern parlance people who are only temporarily work as soldiers and have other jobs. So it's not very hard for for James Wilkinson to become a general in the Kentucky militia and to keep working that way. He just needs to find a chance to become famous and move himself up in the world from technically a militia general to the militia general. Okay, so you start a militia become the general, and then get rich. But he's just missing that piece of the plan that involves being famous to get rich. Exactly. And of course, if you want to become famous as an army officer, the first thing you've got to do is find yourself a war. Okay, so is there a war in America in 1788-89 when we're talking about? Well, no, he's going to have to wait all the way till 1791, two years. But that's not too long to wait, I think, to find yourself a good war. And in 1791, America goes to war. Uh, they call it the Northwest Indian War. It's, uh, as the name would imply, fought against some of the Native Americans living in what was then the Northwest of the United States. Where would that be today? You're talking around Ohio and the region around there. All right, and so James Wilkinson uh, musters his militia to join this war? Exactly. He marches off. He leads his militia to a small town, a small native town near the border area, attacks it, seizes it. This isn't particularly difficult because there's not a lot of warriors actually present in the town at the time. And then after losing two men in his militia, and by his own account, killing six of the enemy, he returns home and begins writing both to his superiors in the military organization of the United States at the time and to various public newspapers about his glorious victory in battle. Now, 
uh, six casualties doesn't sound like a huge battle here. Is he embellishing his victory? He's embellishing his victory a little bit. Also, at this moment, America needs a hero. They need a hero because the Northwest Indian War is going very, very badly. The largest of the militia armies sent to fight it is led by a general known as St. Clair. And because so many of the little regions in Ohio, that area, didn't have names at the time that Europeans knew about, the actual battle that St. Clair fights is named after him. They name it St. Clair's Defeat, which tells you a little bit about how well it goes. Yeah, I would say, as a general, you generally don't want to have a battle named after you called St. Clair's Defeat. No, that's that's not great. It goes badly. The Americans have lost the largest battle of the war in 1791. There's a drop in morale on the home front. People aren't happy. And Wilkinson is going around selling himself as a hero who led his troops into battle, found an enemy, and beat them. And even though his claims are a little bit shaky, there's a lot of people who want to believe in General Wilkinson. And of course, he's perfectly happy to take advantage of that. So do people uh, rally behind General Wilkinson? Does he become the hero that the country needs? He does, to a truly surprising extent. Actually, in the aftermath of St. Clair's defeat, George Washington, the president at the time, decides that America needs a regular army, even if not everybody likes standing armies. And therefore, when he puts out a call asking Congress who should be the commanding general of the new regular United States Army, one of the names that is given to him on the short list of guys to command the entire U.S. Army is James Wilkinson. Wow. Which would be great if he got it, but he doesn't. Oh, darn. George Washington chooses to uh, put into place a man named Anthony Wayne, who he'd fought with during the Revolutionary War and knew very well and knew was a very competent general, who becomes the first commanding general of the U.S. Army. But, of course, everybody on the short list to become the commanding general gets a senior post in the new U.S. Army. And amongst them, James Wilkinson joins the regular army at the rank of lieutenant colonel with apparently a very bright future ahead of him. So his plan to get rich uh, in the military seems to be going pretty well so far. It does. And indeed, in the next few years, things are coming up Wilkinson. He keeps on getting promoted. He's a part of the American army, and he ends up being one of the two highest-ranked officers in the entire U.S. Army in a very, very short period of time. Well, David, this sounds like a real American success story. And it gets even better. Then he gets involved in another, uh, shall we say, shady land deal. This time, President Jefferson conducts the Louisiana Purchase. He buys the entire state of Louisiana from Spain, where it was a colony, and makes it a new state 
as part of the United States of America. And as part of this, he needs a new army base in New Orleans, territory which James Wilkinson already knows very well from his days in Kentucky. And James Wilkinson gets the job of building a new army base. And he finds a guy who's willing to sell him land at apparently great prices. Unfortunately, the land turns out to be a swamp, and hundreds of American soldiers die of malaria because they're stationed in this incredibly unhealthy area. But on the other hand, James Wilkinson gets a massive, dubiously legal kickback, and has achieved his goal of being very rich and being a famous army officer. Wow, well, not such a great result for the rank and file under his command there, but a good result for James Wilkinson as he's now successfully accomplished this plan to get rich through the military. Is this how the story ends, David? Well, it seems like it for a long time. There's multiple people at this period suspect him of being a spy for Spain, which we as historians know that in point of fact he is, and they've been blackmailing him for years over the fact that he offered to sell them Kentucky. But Wilkinson dodges every court-martial, and when it most looks like President Jefferson is going to actually fire him, he brings up a claim that Aaron Burr, formerly the Vice President of the United States, is himself part of a treasonous conspiracy with Spain. And that becomes a very murky story, and it's not clear at all who's telling the truth and who's lying, other than that we can expect that Wilkinson is probably lying because he's James Wilkinson. He seems to be good at lying. Ah, he seems to do it a lot, yes. <laughs> but it's a very murky story, but if you've ever seen the wildly popular Broadway play Hamilton, you'll know that Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr hate each other. So this makes Thomas Jefferson like James Wilkinson so much he changes his mind and keeps him as a senior officer after all. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. Everything seems to be coming up roses for James Wilkinson. But then he runs across something that he can't just skate his way past. A little unfortunate complication known as the War of 1812. <laughs> Okay, that would seem like a little bit more than a little complication. Well, the trouble for James Wilkinson is that when you're a senior army general, you're expected to actually command the army if it gets into any wars. And now that America's part of a war, he has to lead some troops somewhere, presumably. Okay, so he doesn't want to fight now? Well, it's not so much that he doesn't want to fight as that he's getting old and he doesn't know actually very much about commanding a military unit because, quite frankly, his real military experience is practically nil. Virtually all his time has been spent in militias with very little training or tactical competence. And now he needs to head north. Well, not in 1812. In theory... Another general, William Hull, is supposed to be in command in 1812, but after the initial American invasion fails, 
they ask James Wilkinson to head north, take command of the army, and seize Canada for America. And so, does he do that? He does not. This is another long, dramatic story. It could be a podcast on its own. But Wilkinson makes every military mistake in the book. He splits his forces, mostly because one of his subordinate commanders that he's not allowed to fire absolutely hates him because he suspects Wilkinson of being a Spanish agent, which he is, which is proving to be a recurring problem by this point in Wilkinson's life. And then Wilkinson leading around 7,000 troops takes them to a place called Chrysler's Farm along the St. Lawrence River. He's heading down the St. Lawrence River to Montreal, but he's caught up by a British force of around 1,000 guys, so outnumbered 7 to 1. And ordinarily, 7 to 1 is considered good odds uh, militarily. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. But unfortunately, if you just stay on your boat in the middle of the St. Lawrence and refuse to command while multiple of your subordinate officers think that they're supposed to be your replacement and they squabble amongst themselves while the British are attacking, it turns out that you actually can lose a battle even with 7 to 1 odds. Oh no, so Wilkinson loses the battle at Chrysler's Farm. He loses the battle at Chrysler's Farm and he has to return to America in disgrace, of course realizing that he needs a quick win in order to boost his popularity back home he decides to lead another force into quebec just briefly just to seize some territory from canada so that he can at least claim that he's won something so he attacks a small mill a little place called lacol mills and unfortunately he manages to lose again against the force he picked specifically in hopes that it would be easy. And that second defeat is the end of his reputation as a military commander. Yeah, it would seem that uh, losing two battles and one that you one where you had numbers on your side and another one that you specifically picked because you thought you could win it would damage your reputation as a military leader. And the rest of Wilkinson's life He'll resign from the military, spend his time trying to defend his reputation, and then eventually, as we all do, his life comes to a mostly unremarked end. So this is a man who rose to the highest ranks, really, of the American military all while being blackmailed for being into being a Spanish spy because of that original deal that he cut with Spain right at the beginning of this podcast. Absolutely. And I've missed so many things. I didn't even mention that he sold the Spanish information uh, that the Lewis and Clark expedition was being mounted, which led the Spanish to try and run an ambush to capture them but his information was wrong, which led to the Spanish being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I also didn't mention, well, actually, I should ask you, Neil. Why do you think Wilkinson chose 
to just stay on a boat in the middle of the St. Lawrence rather than actually commanding his troops at Chrysler's farm. Well, I'm going to guess it's not because he was afraid of water. No, that would not be it. So at the time, a lot of people accused him of being drunk. Um, a lot of his troops thought he was drunk, and it's certainly a possibility. But there's another fascinating possibility which historians have uncovered. It turns out that he had stomach problems at this point, and his physician had recommended a standard uh, remedy of the time, pure opium. Well, that would certainly uh, make it difficult to command an army if you're doing pure opium. Indeed, he may be the only American general ever to lose a battle because he was high. Well, what a story from this American general and Spanish spy. Thanks for telling us, David. I was glad to share it, Neil. All right, as promised at the beginning of the podcast, we do have a World Cup quiz for you, David, with a history twist. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. Five questions. Our first question, of course, Croatia is in the World Cup final. Rather a surprising result for uh, such a small country to have such great success here. So our first question, when did modern-day Croatia become a country? Modern-day Croatia. Ah, well, if I recall correctly, it was part of Yugoslavia until the 1990s, so I'll guess 1992. Oh, close, David. 1991, they declared independence from communist Yugoslavia on June 25th, 1991. All right, their opponents in the World Cup are France. So here's a French question for you. What title did King Charlemagne obtain in the year 800? I believe he was the Holy Roman Emperor. Correct. He did get that title in 800. All right, let's go back to Croatia. Who was the first king of Croatia in 925? I have no idea. I think there was a king of Albania called Zog, which is a name I've always liked. So let's go with that. It was not King Zog of Albania. It was actually King Tomislav, who was the first king of Croatia in 925. All right, over to France and a French question for you, David. Uh, at what age did Joan of Arc start to have visions? Start to have visions. I seem to recall something about it being her teenage years, perhaps 19? Oh, no, that was, uh, she was actually much younger than that. She was just 12 when she started to have her first visions. 12. Wow. All right, David, our last question here is a World Cup question. What year did the World Cup not have a one-match final game like the one that will be played between Croatia and France? I have no idea. It was in 1950, the first World Cup after the uh, World War, and uh, that year they had a group stage, and Uruguay won it in a group stage, so no final game in 1950. Well, thanks for playing along, David, and thanks for telling us the story of James Wilkinson. That brings an end to this episode of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? But if you want to contact us, tell us what you think, or tell us who you're cheering for in the World Cup, 
on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WhenArtThou. On the internet, you can find us at obrother.ca, or if you want to send us an email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. Thanks for listening. Go France! Go France!